This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we open our Bibles for our study in Ephesians 4 today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for what you have revealed to us, that that we are part of the church, not a local church, but part of the body of Christ, the universal body of Christ that began on the day of Pentecost in 33 and will ex- continue to grow until the Lord returns for us in the rapture. Father, we are thankful to recognize that this is your church, your body. You dictate what the terms are. You give us guidance and direction. You define our purpose and what our mission is. And as we study this great passage, what we learn is that you have provided for our spiritual growth through gifted men, through gifted leaders, whose role it is to equip us to do the work of the ministry. And as we continue this study, help us to understand that this is really is sort of the uh, mission statement and job description uh, for the leaders in, a, in the local church. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're in Ephesians chapter chapter 4, verse 11. And we are looking at these gifted leaders that we find described here. And we let me just read these two verses for you. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor teachers. So that's what we are looking at here, is what the Bible teaches now this third gifted person, the evangelist. What does the Word of God tell us about this? And so the purpose of these gifts, we've looked at apostles and prophets already, and we saw that they had a purpose that was limited to the early church, as described in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 13, and also described in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that these were limited to that early part of the church before the, the New Testament had been completely written. And so the entire body or corpus of the New Testament is described as the canon. We don't shoot people with the canon of Scripture. That's with two N's. The canon is C-A-N-O-N and refers to a rule or a standard. And this coming, uh, not this coming Thursday night, but probably the one after that. Um, no, I'm not going to be here this Thursday night. That was the other thing in the announcements. Um, Jim Myers will be speaking on Thursday night, and he's going to be talking about missions. We have appointed him our 
missions pastor at large since he is back from Ukraine for an indeterminate amount of time. So he will be focusing on that and relating that to some of the things that that um, uh, that we are having him do uh, while he is here. Uh, but, but when I get back, I'll be finishing up what I taught on um, on how the prophecy within the Word of God confirms its accuracy and inerrancy. And then after that, I'll go through the history of how we got the New Testament. Many people have questions about that. And you hear a lot of uh, false information. Fake news started in the Garden of Eden, so it's not anything that was new. And so we have a lot of fake news about uh, councils or people who sort of impose these 27 books on the New Testament and that's not true at all. They, they carry within them as the word that originates in the thinking of God, the very self-authenticating stamp of veracity. It beats the good housekeeping seal of approval. But it resonates in the souls of everyone that God is saying this. And there are those who suppress that truth in unrighteousness and those that will respond to it. But God has given these, these gifted people... Uh, in order to teach the word, and that ref- that looks to the canon of Scripture, the 27 books of the New Testament, which were all completed uh, by the 90s of the first of the first century. So apostles and prophets were no longer needed, and those that rose to the focus, but they were there already, were evangelists and pastor teachers. And so we'll be studying those over the next couple of weeks. And the purpose is in verse 12 for the equipping of the saints to do the work of ministry. A lot of churches refer to the pastor as the minister. Well, the pastor is not the minister. You are. And the pastor is the coach. You're the team. And so it's the role of the pastor to equip saints. And it starts with teaching them And it leads to the edification or the building up of the body of Christ. So when we looked at apostles, we saw that um, an apostle was someone who was directly commissioned by Christ himself uh, to the task of establishing the church in the church age. That's the technical use. It had a broader use that referred to some that were commissioned by a local church to go out as missionaries. And so Barnabas and Junius and some others are referred to as lowercase apostles. But that doesn't relate to the gift and office of apostle that we're talking about here. And you could use it to describe missionaries today, but that would just get so confusing because with the technical use, and most people aren't uh, aware of those two meanings that, that we ought not use it for anything other than the twelve. And it's this one group that's designated as the 12 that are the ones that were called and commissioned directly by Christ, plus the Apostle Paul. Of course, Judas dropped out. We have the episode of the choosing of Matthias as an apostle to replace Judas in Acts 1. But Revelation 21.14 says, The wall of the city, that is the new Jerusalem, had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles. So that they're the foundation of the church. That's what we read and studied in Ephesians 2.20. 
that the apostles and prophets, those temporary gifts at the beginning, which are the ones that are communicating the new revelation for the church age, are the foundation of a church, and a foundation is only laid once. That prophets, we studied them last time, that the concept of prophecy is also very much confused today. But the prophet, as the word is used in the New Testament, has to be understood with an Old Testament background because there's no place, starting with Matthew and going forward, where the term is redefined. It is assumed the reader knows what a prophet is because he knows the Old Testament. And so we saw that this is a temporary gift in the New Testament that specifically ends when that that which is the perfect or that which completes uh, comes according to uh, 1 Corinthians 13.10. So we see that this is these two were temporary gifts, and now we're looking at these uh, permanent gifts of evangelist and then pastor-teacher. We can sort of graph this out this way, that we see that it was he, and that is Christ, who gave, and then you have this word some, 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 and some, four times it's used. That's a translation of a, of a Greek word, M-E-N, men. And what that, that's only used four times. That's why, one of the reasons we say there's only four gifts here. It should have been repeated before teachers if it's talking about a distinct gift. And next Sunday, I will go through that in detail because there's always a lot of confusion over that. And their purpose is to equip the saints to build up the body of Christ with the ultimate goal of having a unity of the faith where we understand the Word of God and the doctrine of Scripture. And this it must be understood in contrast to what Paul states earlier in back in verse 7 that we have already as a result of being in Christ, a unity of the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God. And then this is what leads to spiritual maturity related to, as we'll see, this relates to Christ's likeness. So we start off with uh, the first uh, phrase in Ephesians 4.11, or first clause, he himself gave. It emphasizes that it is Christ who gives. And this is a little different from what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that the Holy Spirit distributes this, this, the gifts. But we see how closely the second person of the Trinity and the third person of the Trinity work together in order to provide uh, the spiritual gifts and these gifted individuals. So in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12, it's talking about the spiritual gifts distributed by, by the Holy Spirit. But this is not talking about spiritual gifts per se. It's talking about the gifted men that Christ has given to the church and for the purpose of equipping the saints. Another thing that we should ask when looking at this is to whom did Christ give these gifted people? Did he give them to A, the local church, or B, the body of Christ, the universal church? If you said A, you're wrong. That, 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 that's a heresy that came out of the some Baptist churches back in the 19th century called Landmarkianism, that there's no real universal church, just a local church. But that gets into some pretty abstruse church history. Uh, he gave it to the church, 
so that the purpose of these gifted individuals is to equip the saints in the body of Christ. It is not saying he's given these to West Houston Bible Church, or he's given pastors to other churches, and their ministry is restricted to the local church. The ministry of these men is directed toward the body of Christ wherever God may direct them. This is one reason that I go on these missions trips to Ukraine every year, and it remains to be seen if it's over with or if we'll go back to that. I'm hoping this war will be temporary, and then there's going to be just a tremendous amount of opportunity. And uh, so eventually... I'm hoping that we'll be going back. But these ministries are given to the body of Christ as a whole. One reason that when I'm invited to go uh, speak somewhere, that that's a ministry to the body of Christ. So it's not just tied down. We have a tendency for people to say, that's my pastor. In one sense, that's true. Or that person is relates to my church, and some people think that that's the only place that that gift is to operate, and that's not what the text is saying. It's saying that these gifts are given to the entire body of Christ. So we've looked at apostle, we've looked at prophet, and now we're going to look at evangelist. Now this is really interesting, and I'm going to spend some time looking at some definitions. Someone has once said a lot of arguments would be would never happen if we would just clearly define our terms. And so it's important to define a couple of terms, and we need to define them biblically, not culturally. The trouble is the church has too many terms that are defined culturally, too many values that are defined culturally due to the ways developed in the history of the church. By culturally, I don't mean necessarily uh, the, the culture of the world, but just the culture within what you might call churchianity as opposed to biblical Christianity. So the word here for evangelist is a noun as opposed to a verb. A noun just names them as a person, and it's the Greek word evangelistas, and this second letter here, uh, uh, upsilon, is, trend, uh, is usually pronounced like a V in, in a, lot of, a lot of words. That's why we get our word evangelist and where we get the V in there. Uh, it comes from t- a compound of a prefix E-U, which has the idea of something that is good or well, something that is a blessing, something that is positive. We use it a lot in the word eulogy, which is a compound of this same prefix plus the Greek word logos. It's a good word that is said said about someone at a, at a, at a funeral. So this is the word good and then also, the, the second part comes from the word angelos, where we get our word for angel, which means a messenger or a message. So here it's a messenger. So this is a messenger of something that is good. He's got some good news to tell. So it's translated as evangelist. Uh, it means a proclaimer of, uh, of good news, a proclaimer of the gospel, and so we have to understand that. Now, I have just a, a brief statement here. I'll give you a full, full definition here in just a minute. It defines it as a proclaimer of the gospel in BDAG. That's the preeminent Greek-English lexicon. 
And the reason I say that is that we see a lot of confusion because it is rarely translated that way. It's translated as preaching something, okay? Differs on the passage, but it's the whole idea is a proclaimer of good news. And when it says preaching Christ, preaching has nothing to do with it. It, That's not what the word means. And the sad thing is it's rarely rarely, uh, treated that way. So we only have the noun used in two other passages in Scripture. One's in Acts 21.8 talking about uh, Philip, the evangelist. He was one of those that was chosen uh, to serve the widows in Acts chapter 6. He's different from Philip, the apostle. And uh, so we're told that uh, as Paul was traveling to Jerusalem, that he came to Caesarea, this would be Caesarea by the sea, and he entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed stayed with him. So he's defined, as that's his role in the early church. And then 2 Timothy 4, 5 says, but you be watchful in all things. He's talking to Timothy, who is a pastor. Often people say he was a young pastor. Well, he was a young pastor. He's probably 40-ish. Okay, it's not young being 18 like uh, or 16 like uh, Charles Spurgeon was. Uh, He was probably in his 40s, and he had been a pastor for some time. And Paul encourages him to do the work of an evangelist. He didn't have that spiritual gifted position, but nevertheless, uh, he does the work of an evangelist. That tells us something, something important, that you can't say, well... I just really don't have the gift of evangelism, so I have a difficult time uh, explaining the gospel to people, so I'll just leave it to God will send an evangelist to them. Well, that's just passing the buck and being irresponsible because we're all expected to function in every area where there are spiritual gifts. We're all expected to be givers, to be grace givers. But some are gifted in that area. We're all expected to be uh, teachers as well. Hebrews says, by now you ought to be teachers, all of you. Uh, They didn't all have the gift of teaching. But some are gifted in these areas, but we're all expected to function in these areas. And Timothy wasn't gifted as an evangelist, but his responsibility as a pastor was to do the work of an evangelist, that is to make sure that in his teaching uh, the gospel was made clear. And that's really important. I, there are several people that I have uh, noted over the course of my ministry, pastors and other Christian workers who, whenever they got a micro, had a microphone stuck in front of their face, they always managed to get the gospel in. They never missed an opportunity. Jerry Falwell was that way. And he was in many, many different venues, and he got involved with a lot of things related to politics. But whenever he was interviewed, he always tried to bring the focus back to Jesus Christ and the fact that Christ had died for our sins and he was our Savior. So we are to do that work. Now, the verb that is related to that noun, nouns only used three times, the verb is evangelizo, which is where we get the the verb evangelize. And now some of this gets a little confusing because 
they're not translated consistently in most of our translations. And so that's what I want to address for probably the next five or ten minutes. This verb is used 54 times in the New Testament, and almost half of them are used um, in Luke or in the Gospel of Luke or in the, his other writing, which is really Luke Part 2, which is the Acts of the Apostle. So 25 of these 54 times are used by Luke. And when those of you who are with me, when we studied the book of Acts, I kept pointing this out, that this, there's so many phrases in the book of Acts that are preaching this, preaching that, preaching that, and, and preaching should never be used as a translation. Uh, I don't think it should be used for a translation for anything because it's just too confusing. Because preaching is, in the minds of many Christians, they think of it as as a certain way of doing a sermon. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, you're not really a preacher, you're a teacher. And I say, well, what is a preacher? And I'll get all kinds of things. And I say, well, define it biblically. And there's silence. Because it's not used that way in the Bible. It, it has come within the history of Western Christianity, and we've influenced the rest of the world, to mean a certain kind of oral presentation. Mostly, I would call it an exhortation, if I were to use a biblical term, as opposed to what the, how the Bible uses it. We're going to see how the Bible uses it uh, this morning, because I, I think it's really important. It's uh, the word evangelizo, the verb in, in Acts and other uh, New Testament books is instead of being translated as proclaiming the good news, it is translated as preaching. Rarely is it translated as a, as as proclamation. So in Acts eight twenty five, it's translated as preaching the gospel, and uh, and that we're going to look at that whole passage in just a little bit related to the work of Philip. In Acts 8.35, he preached Jesus to them. Notice that he doesn't use the word proclamation in that. Other forms of this word are kat angelo, uh, angelo being the root, and this is to, means to announce, declare, and it is sometimes, often translated as preach. In Acts 8.25, um, yeah, 8 I believe it's, yeah, laleo. Laleo means to speak. So it said he spoke about Jesus, but it's translated as preaching. Well, that's an interpretation. That's not a translation. Uh, he's, uh, and there it's translated preaching the word of the Lord. And then you have the most, the word that's most close to the word preaching is keruso, but it's really defined in the lexicons as to preach, as to proclaim. Very close to ev- evangelizo. Evangelizo is proclaiming good news, whereas uh, keruso is just a proclamation. And what we see is that when Caruso is used, it is almost exclusively used for proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So the difference between preaching and teaching has to do with the content. 
If you're proclaiming Christ as the Messiah and the means to salvation, that would be uh, keruso or evangelizo. But what the word that is used primarily of the ministry within the local church is the word, the verb didasco, which means to teach, to instruct, to explain. So we, we now enter into a phase of absolute confusion in the modern church where pastor teachers think they're supposed to be preaching. And preaching is just an oratorical uh, or rhetorical form, literary form or oratorical form. It is not anything like what the biblical word means. No wonder most Christians don't know enough about the Bible to come in out of the rain. They are misinformed by the person who is supposed to be teaching the word, explaining the word, and helping them to understand the word, and instead they're giving an exhortation based on an assumption that the people know what the word says. And I ran into that when I was in seminary, that in, in a, lot of, a lot of ways I was listening to various things that were said in, in certain uh, homiletics courses. That's a technical word for, for preaching courses. And I, I kept thinking, there's an assumption here that everybody in the audience understands or knows these terms and words and is more knowledgeable about the Bible than, than they are. So you have to be explaining and teaching a lot of things. So the definition in BDAG is twofold. First of all, the word Evangelizo means generally to bring good news, to announce good news, proclaim good news. And second, it is to proclaim the divine message of salvation, proclaim the gospel. But that brings up another issue, doesn't it? What does the word gospel mean? That's an important concept. Because a lot of times you may be in a situation, or I, I find myself in a situation where I explain the gospel many, many times in many, many classes. I try to always get the gospel in there, even if it's two or three sentences. But I don't use the word gospel. I don't say, now here I'm going to tell you the gospel. And so not long ago I was in a conversation with somebody, and I said, well, do you understand the gospel? And they said, well... I'm not sure what that word means. And so I knew this individual. I knew he had heard the gospel many times, but he never heard it defined as the gospel. So we have to define uh, what, what that means. So the point is that when we look at what the word for, what the word of evangelizo means, it's proclaiming the good news. And notice that neither of these definitions in BDAG use the word preach. So what does preach mean? Well, in the concise Oxford English Dictionary, it says the first meaning is to deliver a religious address to an assembled group of people. But it doesn't say anything about the methodology or the, the rhetorical form. And so that, could ju that becomes a really ambiguous term. That could mean just you, you're doing just about anything. It covers a very broad, broad spectrum. Uh, all sec a second meaning is to earnestly advocate for someone, gives the example of my parents always preach tolerance. So that doesn't have anything to do with the biblical meaning. That's just reg regular, regular uses. 
but it comes from the Latin word, and this word history is helpful, uh, predicare, which means to proclaim. And in ecclesiastical Latin, it came over to us as preach. But notice the meaning of that root Latin word was proclaim, but you don't find it translated that way. Yeah, I know, this is one of my little hobby horses and pet peeves, is we use this word all the time, and if I were to take each of you aside earlier this morning and say, tell me the difference between preaching and teaching, you wouldn't have even come close. And that's really sad because everybody thinks that, well, I can't really define preaching, but I know it when I hear it. So it's sort of like the definition for pornography. All right, so I just used that slide. I got it repeated. Collins Dictionary defines preach as to make known a religious truth or to give religious or moral instruction or exhortation in sermons. So the dictionaries really don't help us much. We have to look at, at what the Word says. But when you go to homiletical books, books about preaching, uh, they'll define it by saying, well, it's a homily. That's called defining a word by its synonym, which doesn't ever define the word. It just creates the impression you know something. So Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary says that a homily is usually, A, a, a short sermon, or second, it's a lecture or discourse on or of a moral theme, or third, it's an inspirational catch catchphrase or platitude, none of which helps us define what we mean within the church. Let's look at Romans one fifteen. Romans 1.15, Paul writes, So as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Evangelizo, to proclaim the good news. Now, it would have been a lot more clear if the, the translation read, I am ready to proclaim the good news to you who are in Rome also. Now, some translations will say, I'm ready to preach the good news to you who are in Rome also, and that's that's a little more clear but it is the idea of a proclamation. And, and that really fits with the idea of Caruso. We'll come back and talk about that more, but a, a, a proclaimer, a Kerux, was a herald. And back in those days when they didn't have all the social media and you didn't have email and texting or telephones or newspapers, the way that the government, the way that the mayor of a city, the way that the gov- governor in a territory would communicate was he would send out a messenger, a Kerux. And the Kerux would come to the town, and the Kerux is walking through the town, and he has his message. And he's not to discuss it with anybody. He's not there to explain it to anybody. He's not there to answer questions. He just comes there and announces it and goes to the next block and announces it there and goes to the next block and announces it there. That's the role of proclaiming the gospel. You are explaining it, and you're making it clear, and you just move on from town to town, uh, making the gospel clear. So we could, uh, then we come to Acts 5.42, and Acts translates evangelizo, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the good news, or just proclaiming many, or, or preaching, excuse me, preaching the good news, preaching the gospel, or just preaching uh, many times. In Acts 5.42, we're talking about the the, uh, apostles daily in the temple and in every house. They did not teach teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. 
when you're proclaiming evangelizo, proclaiming the good news of Jesus as the Messiah, you are doing evangelism and you're talking to unbelievers. It may be a mixed crowd. When you are giving explanation and instruction, that's teaching. So that's what they were doing. They were teaching and preaching, teaching and explaining the word of God and proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. In Acts 8, 4, we read, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere proclaiming the good message. And that word here is logos, which has a wide range of meanings. And it can mean, it can mean word. It can mean uh, thought sometimes. It can mean reason, the use of reason. It, it has a, about 10 or 15 different meanings, one of which is message. So a lot of times there's a knee-jerk reaction. Every time you see logos, you're going to call it the word, and so it's the word of God. That's the impression it gives. But a lot of times it's not the, talking about the word of God per se. It's not, we think of the word of God as the Bible. What they're, uh, uh, they're proclaiming the good news, the message. That's what, what, how I think it should be translated. And in Acts 8, 5, then Peter went down, uh, Philip rather, went down to the city of Samaria and Caruso here proclaimed Christ to them. What's he doing? Well, that's what we see back here. He is proclaiming the message. A message has to do with Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. And so in 8.12 we read, but when they believed Philip as he evangelizo, as he evangelized or as he proclaimed the good news of the things concerning the kingdom of God, and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were were baptized. Now, what he's teaching about the kingdom of God, just because I know the question's going to come up, he's not saying that the kingdom of God is now. He's explaining that Jesus came to offer the kingdom. The kingdom was rejected and postponed, and we ha- are now in the church age. We know that by looking everything else in Scripture. That's not the focus of, of, of Luke, so he doesn't go into that. But that's what they they were doing, and that's how you understand men, or to understand many of these passages. Acts eight twenty five. So when they had testified and preached, it's the word laleo. When they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord or the message of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel, proclaiming the good news, literally, in many villages of the Samaritans. And then in Acts 8.35, then Philip opened his mouth and began at this scripture, proclaiming the good news about Jesus to him. And then Acts 8.40, but Philip was at Azotus, and passing through, he proclaimed the good news in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So it's much more clear when you translate it the way it should be translated according to the lexicons and then trying to put a cultural idea of preaching uh, into the into the passage. So back in Romans 1.15, Paul says, So as much as in me, I am ready to proclaim the gospel, the good news, to you who are in Rome also. But what is the gospel? What does gospel mean? The English word gospel comes from the old English word godspell, from god meaning good and spell meaning news or story. So they've taken the good news of evangeliste or evangelizo and just 
translated it verbatim over into Old English, meaning the good news. The Latin phrase was bona, good, annunciatio, which means a good announcement or bonus nuncius, and it was used to gloss over ecclesiastical Latin, which transliterated evangelium from the Greek meaning good news. So the good news is what? That we are born spiritually dead, that we do not have a relationship with God, we do not have eternal life, we are not righteous, and we are born condemned. The good news is that we don't have to stay there. The great news is that we don't have to do anything other than trust in Christ because he already did all of the work at the cross. He died for our sins on the cross. And because of that, this is great news. It's not by works. You don't have to go through ritual. You don't have to uh, memorize a catechism. You don't have to do anything at all except simply receive the free gift of eternal life from Jesus Christ. So what we've seen is that you have phrases such as preaching the gospel or the word or Christ, which should be understood or translated as proclaiming the good news, which has to do with the message that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, that's evangelizo. And then we have a second word, keruso, which means to proclaim or to announce the message. It doesn't have anything to do with the rhetorical format. It has to do with the content. Acts 9.20 says, immediately, this is talking about Paul, he proclaimed, Caruso, he proclaimed the Messiah in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. It's interesting. Paul is, Paul is explaining that Jesus is this Messiah, and he goes to the Old Testament to prove that this Messiah was expected to be the Son of God. So all of that just helps us to understand the word here. Now what I want you to do is turn to um, Acts 8, and let's just kind of walk our way in quick summary fashion through uh, the ministry of, of Philip, because Philip is the only one who's called an evangelist, and we see a great example of what he did as a proclaimer of the good news in Acts chapter 8. Actually, there's two episodes in Acts chapter 8, that, uh, that are important. Uh, it starts off telling us that Saul, uh, Saul's consenting to his death, that is the death of Stephen, and then a great persecution arose against the church at Jerusalem, and so everybody scattered uh, through the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. They still stay in, in, in Jerusalem. And then we read that though... In verse 4, therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere uh, pre preaching, uh, preaching the word. So this involves Philip. Philip's going to be introduced to us in verse 5. He was first introduced to us in Acts 6, 5 as one of the seven uh, who were chosen to serve the widows in the church in, uh, in Jerusalem. And so we read in Acts 4, therefore, th those who were scattered went everywhere Evangelizo, proclaiming the good news of the message, proclaiming the good news. And in Acts 5, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and Caruso, he proclaimed Christ to them. 
So it fits. That's his focal point as an evangelist is proclaiming, uh, proclaiming the gospel. And as a result, there were many who trusted in Christ as, as a Messiah. There were various miracles that came along uh, attesting to the veracity of his message. And in verse 8, we're told there was great joy in, in that city. And so I'm going to kind of skip a little further down. Let's go to verse 12. And the response to Philip is when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news about the things concerning the kingdom. When they when they believed him, that's when they're saved. But he's teaching beyond the gospel. Nobody just teaches simply the gospel. You're also covering many other things that apply to believers as well and answering various other questions that, that may come up. And so there's this one guy, and he's, he just, he's, he gets the message. He's saved. Simon the sorcerer is saved because the language that is used for him is the same as that of anybody else. In verse 13, we'll read, Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So he's a brand-new baby believer, and he doesn't have a clue about anything else. But he sees all these miracles, and he thinks, I want to do that. Let me buy it. That doesn't mean he's not saved. It's just a, a confused baby believer. Uh, but he clearly said Simon also believed, using exactly the same language it uses of many, many others in the Scripture who trusted as Christ, uh, Christ as Savior. So verse 14 we hear that the apostles hear of what Philip has done up in Samaria and that the Samaritans uh, are that the, the the apostles in Jerusalem sent Peter and John to them so that they could come and what will happen is they'll pray and there'll be like a second day of Pentecost because the Samaritans were sort of a uh, half breed nation they were composed of Jews that had Jewish blood that had intermarried with a lot of uh, other uh, gentile blood and so the Jerusalem uh, the Judeans in Jerusalem looked down on them they were incredibly prejudiced against them and so if they had just had their own event disassociated from the event of Pentecost in Samaria they would have said well that's the Samaritan church and we have our church but by Peter and John going there and praying for them and that the Holy Spirit came upon them as he did the apostles in Jerusalem in Acts 2, it shows the unity of the church that the Samaritans are part of this new entity just as much as the Jews at Pentecost were, so it would avoid all of that. So that's his first episode related to evangelism, and the second is related to what we read in our Scripture reading at the end of the chapter that begins in verse 26. There we read, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, who is up in Caesarea, and says, Arise, go to the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and he went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, he has a high-ranking position in the government of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. He's in charge of the treasury. So he's the secretary of treasury for the Ethiopian government. And he's riding along in his chariot, and he must have had a chariot driver because it's, I would guess it's hard to drive a chariot and read a scroll at the same time. 
You just have to read and understand what's going on here. So he's reading while they're going along, and the Spirit speaks and guides Philip, go near, overtake his chariot. And Philip ran up and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? He's totally confused, and it turns out that he's in Isaiah 53. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? And he says, well, who's this talking about? I, I, I don't know. And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. That's how the ESV translated it. He told him the good news about Jesus. Uh, the New King James translates it, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Well, he's not preaching Jesus in the sense that most people think of preaching. He's just explaining the scripture. It's a, it's a conversation between, between two people. Now, there's one other passage I want to look at, and that's in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. You, and I'm going to compare it with Titus 1, 9, because they're almost saying the same thing. In 2 Timothy 4, 2, Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. Now, this is the motto of Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, preach the word. See, we all had to, we all memorized that in Greek. Uh, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And then he's going on beyond that, uh, and he says, convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering and teaching. So he's basically defining the roles of a pastor. A pastor is going to proclaim the good news of the message. That's how I would translate Lagos there. Proclaiming the good news of the message and be ready in season and out of season. And that was, that was paraphrased in my ordination. Be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. And this is compared to Titus 1.9. Now, when I was a young man working at a Christian camp, we would uh, do various things, but each counselor at the end of the summer would be, someone, uh, one of the directors would pick a verse that would fit this particular person. And this was the verse that was, uh, that uh, David chose for me. He's, he's, and he told me this, I had forgotten this. But he told me this a few years ago. He said, I always, every time I think of you, I think of Titus 1.9. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. The red arrows there show that both this word convict, elenko in the Greek, and the word exhort are used to, in both passages. Exhort is parakaleo. It means to challenge people to apply the word of God. Other thing that is interesting here is that the first verse talks uses keruso, proclaiming the message, which in most places relates to the gospel. And probably that's the part he uh, he'd already, Paul had already told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. And I think that's what this is talking about contextually is proclaiming the gospel and then convincing, rebuking, and exhorting 
along with all long-suffering and teaching, is the rest of what the communication of a pastor-teacher is supposed to do. He is supposed to hold fast, to cling to the faithful word. You stick with the word. Paul had said to Timothy in 2 Timothy that commit these things to faithful men as they were committed to you. That's the role of the, of the pastor, a part of that, that role. And so we preach the message, the logos. Uh, this is the message, and that primarily refers to the gospel because the way Caruso is used in almost every other place. And we hold fast the faithful, stick to the message. And it is by the sound doctrine, the sound teaching of Scripture that we challenge people and that God the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts them through the Word. So what's the conclusion? The conclusion is that the word evangelizo and caruso predominantly focus on proclaiming the good news or explaining the gospel to people, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, tying it back to Old Testament prophecies. He redeemed us from sin, paid the penalty for sin, provided forgiveness, and he's the one on whom we should believe that we might have eternal life. That's the content of the gospel. It's by faith and faith alone, in Christ alone, and nothing else. John twenty thirty one says, but these are written. That is, everything that he said in the gospel, focusing on these signs, uh, taking that word from the previous verse, these signs are written that you may believe that, number one, Jesus is the Messiah. In other words, he's the one who's the promised and prophesied in the Old Testament. He's the Son of God. And that believing you may have life, that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is what an evangelist does. But, you know, there's something else we should see in our passage. An evangelist is one who gives and proclaims the good news of the gospel. But if you look at the purpose statement here in Ephesians 4.1, it says that the purpose of the, these gifts, these four gifts, is to do what? to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The primary mission of the evangelist is not to do evangelism. The primary ministry of the evangelist is not to be the person or persons in the local church that are the ones doing most of the evangelism. Their role is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. Their job is to equip the saints to be able to give the gospel. They're not gifted at it. So the gifted person is going to train those who aren't gifted to be able to give the gospel to unbelievers. Now, when this church first started, one of my good friends, Gene Brown, had clearly had the gift of evangelism. And Gene was remarkable. I've been many, many places many, many times, and all of a sudden Gene just stops and starts talking to somebody, and next thing I know they're praying, this guy's just trusted Christ as his Savior. One time we had a windshield wiper go bad on our car up in Dallas, and we pulled into the auto place, auto parts place, and we went in and bought a new windshield wiper, and uh, the attendant came out and was putting it on, and Gene witnessed to him. And next thing I know, they're sitting on the curb. He's got his Bible out and explains the gospel to him. And what we would do is that about every year or two, we had various meetings where Gene would, take, would help all of us walk through how to give the gospel. Now, sadly, for us, 
but not for him. He went to be with the Lord about four, four or five years ago. And so right now, I don't know anybody quite like, there was nobody quite like Gene. If those of you who knew Gene know there was nobody like Gene. He was a one of a kind. But that's the role of the evangelist in the local church is to train others in the local church to equip them to do the work of ministry, the work of evangelism. So next time, what we're going to do is come to the next, which is the pastor and teacher, as it's quoted, but it should be pastor hyphen teacher, pastor slash teacher, because the way you pastor or lead the sheep is by feeding them and teaching them. And so we'll look at this third issue. Uh, We looked at preaching and proclaiming the gospel, Caruso and Evangelizo. Next time, we're going to look at um, what it means to teach and the distinction between these different words. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to go through these important words in the Scripture to understand what you have revealed to us using the words that you've used, the way you use them, and how important it is to be accurate and to define these terms and understand that the role and purpose of these gifted men is to equip us, the saints, to do the work of ministry. Father, we pray that anyone who is here, anyone listening online, anyone who listens at a later date, that if they've never understood the gospel, the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised and prophesied Messiah from the Old Testament, and that he came to die on the cross for our sins like a a lamb led to slaughter, and that he died for us, that through him many would be justified, would be declared righteous. Father, we pray that anyone who's an unbeliever would recognize that it's not based on your good deeds, it's not based on works, it's not based on nationality, it's not based on anything other than faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in him. He is the one who saves us by virtue of his death on the cross and that it is all it takes, all it needs is for us to believe, to trust in him. That's the good news. And the instant we, we capture that thought in our soul and we believe Christ is the Messiah and the one who saved us, at that instant, Scripture says that we are born again. We don't have to pray a prayer. We don't have to go through many other things that are typical in churches. But the instant we believe in our soul that Christ is the one who saves us, he died for our sins, at that instant we have everlasting life. Father, we thank you for our time to worship at your word today, and we pray that you would just give us opportunities to develop in our our own spiritual gifts, but also to function as evangelists. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.